Good morning. It's good to be with you all this morning. I love uh, this time of year. I've been looking forward to the first Sunday of Advent. It's wonderful to sing with you all and, um, and, and get into God's Word with you all this morning. For those of you, some of us are more or less familiar with uh, Advent and what it is and what it means. So this is a season in the church calendar, the Christian calendar, uh, that we associate with Christmas, but it's not Christmas proper. It's the time leading up to Christmas. It's the four Sundays leading up to Christmas where we wait and we look and we expect. The word Advent is a Latin word that just means arrival or coming, and it's about the coming of God to us in Christ. During the season, we look back to God's first coming in Christ, and we remember how the Old Testament people of God were looking forward, longing, hoping, waiting, expecting for God's Messiah to come and deliver them. And save them. And of course, it was greater than they ever expected. They expected him to raise up a human rescuer, a human deliverer, and instead he gave them himself as God the Father sent his son to actually take up human nature and human flesh and live among them. We don't just look back to Christ's first coming, we also look ahead to his next coming. When he left, he promised his disciples, I'm going to come back. And Acts chapter 1, you can read this. He ascends back to heaven to the Father, and the angel shows up, and he says, what are you guys looking at? Don't freak out about this. He's going to come back the very same way that he left. And so for 2,000 years, God's people, the church, have been living in this strange time between the times where we look back to Christ's first coming, and we look ahead to his next coming. And during Advent, uh, we just think about that in a particularly focused way. It's not... It's not a time of celebration, per se. That's what Christmas is for. Uh, It's a time of looking forward with hope and with certainty and with confidence to the fact that we are going to celebrate because God is going to do what he promised he was going to do. Uh, Every season of life has a a, a way of shaping us. I still, uh, I've been out of out of school for or out of high school for several years, but every spring when you get a couple of warm spring days, my body still reminds me that summer break is coming up. Even though I will never have another summer break for the rest of my life, those first warm days remind me that I'm about to be out of school for three months. I grew up also uh, going to football games every Saturday in the fall, and every fall when you get that first morning where it's a little crisp and there's a fall breeze, I think it's football season. We all participate in the Advent season or the Christmas season in different ways that get sort of baked into our minds and hearts and bodies. And my guess would be that for most of us, we prepared for the Christmas season growing up by thinking about all the fun stuff that we were going to get on Christmas morning. Uh, and as we grow up, maybe, maybe you still think about that. Maybe now that's replaced with like anxiety about how am I going to have enough extra money to get my kids all the stuff that they want for Christmas or anxiety about traveling and, and being with family. Uh, every season has, has the power to shape us. And we want at King's Cross to, to help you participate in this season uh, in a way that would shape us in the way that God wants us to be shaped. That we wouldn't spend this Advent season being stressed, being anxious, being greedy, but we would spend it thinking about Christ and his coming and how that compels us to live. And so when you came in, hopefully you got a little handout that says Advent at King's Cross. This just has some ways, some recommendations uh, that you can participate and engage personally in this season of Advent. In particular, on the back, it has some resources that you could read through devotionally or with your family. It also... uh, has some, some instruction about how you can practice the spiritual discipline of charity. 
Now, charity is one of those words that's gotten a bad rap, uh, as if it is kind of condescending, but it just means love. In particular, it means generosity motivated by love. And during the season, we remember that God gave us the greatest gift that he could possibly have given us in his son. And our response to that ought to be to give to others, to share and to love and to care for particularly those in need. And so this guide has um, some suggestions on how you can do that this season. I hope that'll be helpful to you. One more note on Advent before we get into the sermon. On Saturday, we're having a Christmas community event here at the church downstairs in the gathering hall. This is an opportunity for us to bless people in our neighborhood. It's an opportunity for us to serve others, for us to have fun, but also for us to invite uh, folks and connect them with the church who maybe are not connected to a church or uh, we've been praying about inviting and this sort of event is a much lower barrier of entry than coming on a Sunday morning. So I want to ask you to do three things. One, to come. Uh, two, to invite somebody to come with you. And three, just to pray that this would be a fun and encouraging time that people would feel blessed by and, and would have fun uh, themselves and their families. So uh, we, it's 10 o'clock Saturday morning. We're having some food. If you haven't signed up to bring food and you would like to, please do that. Uh, we're going to decorate some ornaments, listen to Christmas music, do those sorts of things. Okay, Genesis chapter 12. Uh, last week, we were in Genesis chapter 3, starting this series on the theme of God coming to us. That's what Christmas is about. It's also what the entire Bible is about, that God, amazingly, has come to us. And he's come to us in Christ. And throughout the entire Bible, we see these little examples of God coming to us that point forward to the big ones. And so last week, we saw that God comes to us in our shame. God creates humanity. We sin. We turn away from him. He doesn't turn away from us. Instead, he, he comes to us in our shame and in our sin. This morning, we're going to see that God comes to bless. When he comes to us, he comes to bless. And we're going to see this from three different chapters of Scripture. So I'm going to jump around a bit. I'm going to read uh, from Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and Genesis 17. In each of those chapters, I'm going to start with verse number one. So I'll just tell you when to turn to the next chapter. So beginning in Genesis 12 and verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Chapter 15, verse 1. After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? <clears throat> Abram continued, <clears throat> look, you have given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now the word of the Lord came to him, this one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, Lord God, how can I know that I will possess it? God said to him, bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So he brought all these to, them, to him, cut them in half, and laid the pieces opposite each other. But he did not cut the birds in half. Birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, a deep sleep came over Abram, and suddenly great terror and darkness descended on him. 
And the Lord said to Abram, Know this for certain, your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve, and afterward they will go out with many possessions. But you will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, I give this land to your offspring from the brook of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hethites, Perizzites, Rephaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him saying, I am God Almighty, live in my presence and be blameless. I will set up my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell face down and God spoke with him. As for me, here is my covenant with you. You will become the father of many nations. Your name will no longer be Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I will make you the father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful and will, and will make nations and kings come from you. I will confirm my covenant that is between me and you and your future offspring throughout their generations. It is a permanent covenant to be your God and the God of your offspring after you. And to you and your future offspring, I will give the land where you are residing. All the land of Canaan is a permanent possession and I will be their God. This is the word of the Lord. Religion is a totalitarian belief. It is the wish to be a slave. It is the desire that there be an unalterable, unchallengeable, tyrannical authority who can convict you of thought crime while you're asleep, who can subject you to total surveillance around the clock every waking and sleeping minute of your life before you're born, and, even worse, after you're dead, a celestial North Korea. Who wants this to be true? This is a famous quote by Christopher Hitchens. Christopher Hitchens was an atheist journalist uh, who was given the honor of being titled one of the four horsemen of new atheism, along with Richard Dawkins and others. He wrote several books uh, against Christianity, against all organized religion. He was a a very sort of aggressive type of atheist, very evangelistic atheist, you might say. And in this quote, he represents what I think is how many people sort of impulsively think about God. He's a cosmic North Korea, surveilling every moment, perpetually prepared to pounce. He's a, he's a cosmic Scrooge, and he has all the wealth, all the money, all the stuff in the world, and he's not willing to share it with anybody. He's a cosmic police officer in a world of speed traps. This is how we think of God, that he's just looking at us, ready to jump on us. And if that view of God is accurate, then the title of Hitchens' most famous book, God is Not Great, is spot on. But when we open the Bible and consider its vision of God, consider who the biblical God is, what do we find? As we saw last week, God, first of all, creates. Now, from the start, by definition, the fact that God creates counters the view of Hitchens. If God exists, and he exists before and outside of creation, then he must, by definition, be infinite. He must have everything. There must be nothing that he needs. So if he is going to create, it can't be because he needs something. It can't be because he wants to add something to himself. It must be because he wants to give, because he wants to bless, because he wants to share 
what belongs to him. He creates the world, creates people in his image. They sin. And as we saw last week, shame enters into the story. They realize they're naked. And what do they do? They work to cover themselves up. They go and hide from God. And then they start pointing the finger and blaming each other and blaming God. But how does God respond? Uh, he, he does give them consequences, right? He says, your sin is going to cost you certain things. But even before he lists the consequences, what does he do? He seeks them out. Adam, where are you? He goes looking for them. And when he does, he, he makes promises. He says, I promise you that what you broke, what you messed up, I am going to fix. You blew it but I am going to fix it. And then finally, he makes a substitute for them and he covers them. He takes an animal and he kills it. He sacrifices it because somebody, something had to die because of their sin. But he says, it's not going to be you. It's going to be this animal. And I'm going to take the skins from this animal and make clothes for you to cover up your shame. And of course, it's pointing forward to what ultimately he's going to do in Christ. Unfortunately, in spite of God's amazing acts of grace in Genesis chapter 3, in Genesis chapter 4 through 11, the story just continues to get worse and worse and worse. You immediately read about a brother killing his other brother. Uh, you read at one point that the description of humanity is that they only, were, they only thought and did evil all the time. Just ubiquitous evil. Chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, you get just the, the pride of human society, right? We're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to be great. We're going to build this tower up to the sky and storm heaven. It's a mess. But God is not done. And in Genesis chapter 12, he comes to a man. He comes to one man named Abram. Now, Abram, the text tells us, is a descendant of Shem, now, if you've been following the story, Genesis chapter 6, Noah has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Shem receives a blessing from Noah and from God, and so you get this sense that his offspring are going to play an important role in the redemption of the world. So maybe there's something special about Abram, but even though he's a descendant of Shem, he's also living in Ur. It's called Ur of the Chaldeans. Uh, it, it, it was an important cultural center in Babylonia, an ancient kingdom. And it was a, a large city, an important city for trade. There's a lot going on there. And unlike today, where you can live in a large city and everybody can sort of do business together with their own ethical commitments, their own religious commitments, back then you couldn't separate those things. And so most likely, though the text doesn't say it explicitly, Abram and his family, because they're living in this large pagan cultural center, they're probably participating in worship of pagan gods. He's probably not in an intimate relationship with the one true God. But nonetheless, while he's there minding his own business, God shows up. And what does God show up to do? He shows up to bless him. And over and over and over again in the coming chapters, as Abram and his offspring keep messing up and messing up and messing up, God just reasserts and reaffirms, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you. This morning, we're going to look at that blessing in three parts, the nature of the blessing, the response to the blessing, and the fulfillment of the blessing. But before we dig in, I just want to say, maybe for some of you, this is all that you need to hear, is that God's disposition to you is one of blessing. He's not looking down on you ready to pounce. He's not trying to catch you or to trap you or to trick you. He's not holding out on you. He loves you. And he wants to bless you, ultimately, fully, in his son, Jesus Christ, who he already has given to us. And as Romans 8 tells us, if he would give us his own son, why wouldn't he give us everything else? God 
looks at you with the desire to bless. And he did that for Abram. First, the nature of the blessing. It's totally and completely unexpected. Look again with me at chapter 12. There's six promises in this blessing. The Lord said to Abram, go from your land, your relatives, your father's house to the land I'll show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And the peoples, all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Six promises that are absolutely life and future changing. Abram is just minding his own business, working, having a family, and God shows up and says, your future is going to be completely and utterly different than your present is. It reminded me of the Charles Dickens novel, Great Expectations. I just think about Dickens a lot around Christmas. I already referenced Scrooge. This isn't even a Christmas book, but it still makes me think of Christmas. If you've read Great Expectations, you know, for context, there's a, the main character, he's a young boy named Pip. Nobody is better at naming their characters than Charles Dickens. He's a young boy, and he's named Pip. He's a pipsqueak, and he lives in this small town in the country in England. He has an older sister and brother-in-law who raise him, and as he grows into a teenager, he's basically an apprentice for his brother-in-law, and one evening, they're out with some other men gathered around the fire at the Three Jolly Bargemen, which is another aside. If any of you want to open a pub called the Three Jolly Bargemen, I will be your most regular customer. They're gathered around the fire with some other men, and Pip notices this strange man. He's not from town. Uh, He's kind of foreboding, looking very serious, uh, very important seeming. He's actually seen him once before. He learns that his name is Jaggers, another great name. Uh, And Jaggers is a lawyer. He's, He's the most feared and revered criminal lawyer in the city of London. Yet he's in this small provincial town on some business. And it turns out his business is to deliver some news to young Pip. I'm instructed to communicate to him, said Mr. Jaggers, throwing his finger at me sideways, that he will come into a handsome property. Further, that it is the desire of the present possessor of that property that he be immediately removed from his present sphere of life and from this place and be brought up as a gentleman, in a word, as a young fellow of great expectations. Pip is an orphan. He's a poor kid out in the country, and all of a sudden somebody comes and says, you're moving tomorrow. I'm taking you to London. You're going to be really rich one day, and you're going to be brought up as a young fellow of great expectations. That's what happens to Abraham. He's just minding his own business when a message comes to him, get up and go, leave this place. I'm going to bless you. Your future is going to be so much different. You are going to be a not-so-young fellow of great expectations. It isn't asked for. It isn't earned. It isn't deserved. It isn't worked for. It's just graciously, wonderfully, unexpectedly given by God. Not only is it unexpected, it's unconditional. It's not based on any conditions that Abram can meet. Yes, chapter 12 does include instructions, get up and go, but the promises are made long before Abram even has a chance to obey or disobey the commands. The promise has nothing to do with any conditions that Abram can fulfill. And we really see this in chapter 15. Okay, if you're new to the Bible, if you've never heard that story in chapter 15, it's really weird. It's really bizarre that Abraham just cuts these animals in half, right? What's going on? This is a covenant ceremony. This is one of the most important scenes, actually, in the Old Testament. And this this type of ceremony would actually have been rather common in the, the world of the early scriptures. It, it would be akin to us sitting down and signing a contract today. But rather than just printing out a bunch of words and saying, this is what will happen if I break my contract, people then would act out the covenant. They would act out the curses 
that were in the, in the footnote of the contract. So instead of just signing their name, they would take these animals and cut them in half and walk between them as if to say, if I break my end of the covenant, may this happen to me. May I be torn in half as these animals are. But what's fascinating about chapter 15 is, does Abraham walk through the animals? No, he falls asleep. <laughs> and he sees a vision and a, a smoking pot and a flaming torch, which should bring our minds back to the Exodus. God brings his people out of slavery and he walks through the wilderness with them as a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. So here the, sm the smoke, the cloud, and the fire get up and I guess float through the animals. Abraham doesn't walk between them. God is saying, I'm going to make this covenant with you, and if I fail on my end of the covenant to bless you, may I, God Almighty, be torn in half like these animals. And if you fail to hold up your end of the covenant, may I, God Almighty, be torn in half like these animals. It's utterly unconditional. God says to Abraham, I will bless you because I will bless you. God says, listen, because, Christopher Hitchens, I'm not that kind of God. I'm the kind of God who wants to bless people. I'm just going to do this because that's the kind of God that I am. Another Christopher, Christopher Watkin, draws a contrast between what he calls the N-shaped dynamic of other religions and of the human heart and the U-shaped dynamic of the gospel. So picture, it's not really an N, it's really just an upside-down U and a, and a regular U. But the N-shaped the, the dynamic says people are down here and we work our way up to God. We pray to Him, we do good deeds, we're really moral, we're really ethical, we give a lot of our money, and in response, God brings blessings down on us. And the Bible and the gospel undercuts that completely with this U-shaped dynamic that says God is up here and He just blesses he just pours out his love. He just pours out his grace. And it's in response to him that we praise and worship God. I love um, the song Blessings by Chance the Rapper, which says, when the praises go up, the blessings come down. I love the song. The theology is terrible. That's not how it works. It's that the blessings come down free at God's initiative, and we simply respond. A third thing about this blessing is that it's It's unbelievable. Of all the six promises that God gives Abraham, there's one thing that they're all conditioned on, and that is the fact that he will have a son. He'll have a child. He's 75 years old at the time that the, the promise is first made, the covenant is first made. That's really old to have a child. His wife is 10 years younger. She's 65 years old. So it's unbelievable from the start, but as the story goes on, they're walking around with this promise in mind, and we can read chapters 12 through 17 in half an hour, but they happen in over, over two decades by the time we get to chapter 17, look back at 17, verse 8. What, how old is Abraham at the start of 17? He was 99 years old. And God says, I'm going to multiply you greatly. 24 years have passed. That's longer than some of you have been alive. And they've been waiting on this promise the whole time. God says, really? It's like, at the end of the chapter, he says, can a 99-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman have a child? God says, Yes. Your wife, Sarah, is going to have your son. I read, actually, this week, a story in the BBC that said a 73-year-old woman in Uganda just had twins. That's amazing. Uh, there's a lot of technology involved in that, and, and it's a modern medical miracle. But even that sort of medical science and technology could not accomplish what God is promising Abram he's going to accomplish. That a 99-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman are going to have 
children. And he's so committed to it, God, is that he changes their names. Abram becomes Abraham, which means father of a multitude. And Sarai becomes Sarah, which means princess. Now, in a world in which people knew the meaning of names, and and that played a role in their culture, just imagine the awkwardness of Abram at 99 years old saying, you can call me father of a multitude now. (laughs) I'm childless, but God's going to give me lots of kids. Call me Abraham. How does Abraham respond to God's blessing? First, his response is commendable. He has faith. He believes God. He has faith, first and foremost, in chapter 12 to go. We've been studying James in our discipleship groups, right? And we've seen over and over again, faith is active. Faith works. Faith has feet. Abram gets up and he walks and he goes. God says, I want you to get up. I want you to go. Abram says, where do you want me to go, God? God says, don't worry about it. I'll tell you when you get there. Go to the place where I'm going to tell you that it's the place to go. God was not calling him to move to an apartment across town with the help of some friends, right? He's calling him to get up and leave the life that he's known. And it's important to note, you know, in our day, we often think of cities as the place of crime and the place of danger, and out in the suburbs or in the country is more peaceful and idyllic. It was the exact opposite in Abram's world. In a world of, you know, resources are different. Access to food and water is different. Cities were places where people came together to take care of each other. They had resources, they had commerce, they had food, they had everything that they needed. He had his family, an extended family there, and God says, get up, go be a nomad, wander through the wilderness where you're going to have dangers of all kinds, and I'm, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to give you a child while you do so. And Abraham does it. And we see this most clearly in chapter 15, verse 6, where we read that as God reaffirms his promise and his blessings to Abraham, Abraham believed God, and God counted it to him as righteousness. He believed God. He trusted God. But Abraham's faith is far from perfect. In fact, it's, it's quite faulty. Frankly, throughout the story, Abraham keeps messing up over and over and over again. Chapter 12, verse 10 and following, is immediately after the covenant. Abraham is, is walking through the wilderness with Sarah, his wife, and his family, and they, they come to Egypt. And immediately he gets scared that they're going to take Sarah and bring her into the king's harem and kill Abraham. He doesn't trust that God's going to bless him. He doesn't trust that God's going to give him a child. So he says, Sarah, when we get there, pretend that you're my sister. He throws her under the bus and she ends up in the king's harem because Abraham was afraid and doesn't trust the promises of God. Chapter uh, 16, right after that covenant ceremony, right? They're sitting around and Sarah says, Abraham, we're getting really old. Like, this already was unlikely. It's just not going to happen. You can't, I can't have children. My maidservant, Hagar, is a young woman. Maybe that'll work. Why don't you sleep with her and see if she gets pregnant? And then that can be your offspring. And Abraham does it. He listens, and that causes a whole mess. And God says, no, your wife, Sarah, is going to have a child. Again, chapter 20, which is beyond where we read today, they're walking through another kingdom. And the whole situation with Egypt just happens again for a second time. Abraham says, here, take her. She's my sister. She's not my wife. Funny enough, his son does the same thing later in Genesis. Isn't it amazing to know that God's promises don't depend on the strength of your faith, but on the strength of his word? God's promises do not depend upon the strength of your faith, but on the strength of his word. The very father of our faith is a stumbling, bumbling, weak, scared doubter, filled with fear of men, constantly going back to God asking, are you sure, are you sure, are you sure? 
Can you identify with Abraham? If so, that's really good news. <laughs> I have faith, but it's faulty. Jesus said, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, it can move mountains. It isn't the strength of our faith that matters, but the object of our faith. That's for Abraham, and it's true for us too. Third point, the fulfillment of the blessing. What is this blessing really about? How is it fulfilled? Frankly, if it's just about a guy who lived thousands of years ago in the middle of nowhere, I don't particularly care. What does it have to do with me? Look back at verse 3 of chapter 12. The second half of the verse, God says, All the peoples, all the nations, all the ethnicities on earth will be blessed through you. God was making a promise to Abraham, as Paul explains for us in Galatians, that there would come somebody from Abraham's offspring. And by the way, it's the same one who's going to come from Eve, as we saw God promise last week. God promised Eve, you're going to have a son who's going to crush the head of the serpent. You're going to have a son who's going to defeat humanity's great enemy. And here in Genesis 12, God is telling Abraham, you are going to have a son through whom every single tribe and tongue and nation on earth is going to be blessed. The fulfillment of this promise is also unexpected. It's the most unexpected thing ever. God incarnate, that means God in human flesh, God in human nature, the, the, the author of the story writes himself into the story. And he comes to earth, and he, he's not born with a lot of fanfare, right? He, he doesn't come in and say, I'm, I'm the king, everybody bow down. He's born to a, a virgin mother, an unmarried couple, and he's laid in a, in a feeding trough in a barn, and, and only a handful of people even know about it. What's more unexpected than that? One thing, maybe, that he grows up and he dies on a cross, <laughs> stripped naked with all of his followers abandoning him. This is the most unexpected story ever, and it's true. It's foolishness and weakness to the world, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, but it's the wisdom and strength of God. It's also unconditional. You are saved by grace, not works. Saved by grace through faith, it's not on any condition that you or I can fulfill. Jesus fulfilled all the conditions for us. In fact, if we, if we go back to that weird covenant ceremony in chapter 15, where God tells Abraham, I'm going to fulfill all the conditions, and, and if you break your end, may this happen to me. If I break my end, may this happen to me. But it, isn't it interesting that there's two objects that go between the animal parts? that it's the, the smoking pot and the flaming torch. I'm, I don't want to be reading too much into the text, but isn't it possible that this is God the Father and God the Son walking through the parts together? And God is not just saying, if, the, if you break your end of the covenant, may this happen to me, but he's saying, if you break your end of the covenant, may this happen to my Son. And it did. He comes to earth and he takes on a human body and human nature and he goes to the cross and he's torn apart for us. The fulfillment of the promise is no less unexpected, it's no less unconditional, and it's no less unbelievable than the first. You know what's more impossible than a 90-year-old having a baby? A virgin having a baby. It just doesn't happen. And yet, God tells Abraham, your wife Sarah will have a child, and he tells Joseph, the fiancé of Mary, through an angelic messenger, Mary will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus 
because he will save his people from their sins. When God comes to us, he doesn't come as a cosmic North Korea. He doesn't come to trick us, to trap us, to catch us, to punish us. He comes to us as a baby in fulfillment of a promise to bless us, to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. And he comes to us on a cross to take the curse, to take the punishment that we deserve so that we can have the blessing. That is unbelievable, but do you believe it? Do you believe this story? How are you viewing God this morning? Do you believe that he wants to bless you, that he loves you, that he's not holding out on you, that he only wants for you and he is only going to do for you what you would want for yourself if you knew everything that he knows? And he's proven it to us in Christ.